Well, our kids can walk and slide out to Transformation Station. And as they're sliding out, let me encourage you to grab a copy of God's Word or to turn your copy of God's Word on, whatever device you're using. We've got Bibles in the back that we provided. And we're going to be in John chapter 7, the end of John chapter 7. And the Bibles that we provide, that's on page 894. Well, my name is John, and I serve as one of the pastors at Redemption Hill, and we are glad and delighted that you've joined us today as we worship our great God and as we seek Him and seek to learn from Him. This morning, I want to deliver a word to you entitled, The Trustworthy Word. And before we jump into our text here, um, I just want to share something that happened uh, a little over a year ago. Newsweek magazine, uh, two days before Christmas in 2014, posted an article by Kurt Eichenwald, and it was called this, The Bible So Misunderstood, It's a Sin. And he makes this stunning claim. No television preacher, listen to this, he says this, no television preacher has ever read the Bible. Neither has any evangelical politician, neither has the Pope, neither have I, and neither have you. At best, we've all read a bad translation. A translation of translations of translations of hand-copied copies of copies of copies of copies and on and on hundreds of times. The goal of this attack is to convince you in the world that the Bible can't be trusted. Has anyone ever engaged you with such attacks? I'm just curious. If so, how did you respond? Did it shake your faith a little? Maybe even you're here today. I hope we have people here today that are exploring Christ. Maybe this is one of the barriers for you, is that you're looking at the Word and, and even the text that we're going to see today and to say, yep, look, there's, there's proof again. The Bible is full of errors and it can't be trusted. This issue becomes all the more real in our text Today, The message that I'm going to give you today is going to be a little different than what we've been doing as we go through the Gospel of John. And that's because the situation with our passage today is so rare. I want you to look here with me in John chapter 7, beginning in verse 53. And I don't know what Bible or translation you have, but in mine, this whole passage from 753 down to 811 has double square brackets around it. You guys see that? Yes, you with me? And mine even says above 753, the earliest manuscripts do not include these verses. The reason for this is that most New Testament scholars do not think that this passage was original as a part of of John's gospel. Rather, it was added much later. And here's their reasoning, real quick. First, they point to the external evidence. 
If you're using the ESV Bible, you see there, it says the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. And this is the truth. This passage is completely absent from all manuscripts before the 5th century. Completely. Second, the early church fathers, all of them, skip over this passage. So when you read them and they come to John 7, 52, they go right straight to 8, 12. I mean, they just jump right over it as if it's not even there. The external evidence is very heavy saying, hey, we didn't have this early on, and it doesn't seem to be that it was a part of the original gospel of John. But then you turn to the internal evidence. And the internal evidence is just to read the passage and say, does this seem to fit what John would have said. Now, before we look at that, just to remind you, in chapter 7, which Tanner shared with us last week, we have Jesus at the Feast of Booths. And that chapter, in verse 52, it ends with him there. And he's had this dialogue and this engagement. But look at what verse 753 does. Look at your Bible. In 753, it says this, they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. It's a completely different change in context, right? But if we were to remove this passage and just go from 752 to 812, look at what verse 12 says, which is what we'll look at next week. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Now, I don't want to steal too much thunder from next week, but we're going to see the overtones of this argument of Jesus being the light of the world and its connection with that feast seems to be much more plausible than this, okay, he's going to go to the Mount of Olives and then we're going to come back and we're going to pick up what seems to be a natural flow. So if we didn't even have 753 to 811, it would just seem like the natural flow that argues the internal evidence that maybe this wasn't original with John, but it doesn't leave us there. Hang in here with me. I'm, I'm going somewhere, and I don't want you to clock out whoever me, because this is really important. 14 of the 82 words in this passage are used nowhere else in the Gospel of John. 14%. That's the internal evidence. And so this should be raising red flags across the board. And so when you combine the external evidence with the internal evidence, scholarship almost universally, if you were to go pick up a commentary, most of them, some of them don't even commentate, give commentary on this passage, but almost universally agree that this passage was not original to John. So what are the implications? This is where the rubber hits the road of where we're headed today. If this passage is not original to John, then it shouldn't be considered as part of the Christian Bible. Second, it's not inspired by God. Third, it's not the Word of God. And then fourth, it should not be preached as the Word of God. So there you have it. I guess we're done for the day. Can I get an amen? You guys following me? No amens? You guys are still hungry. I see you. You're like, no, I want some more. Let's hang in here. Well, here's what we're going to do. I'm just kidding. We're not done for the day. What I want to do with my time today is to address a larger issue that our text puts before us, and it's this. Is it true that in the Bible, all we are left with 
is a translation of translations of hand-copied copies of copies of copies of copies and on and on hundreds of times. The effect of this statement is to leave you questioning whether you can even trust the Bible at all. You don't think this is important? Let me just make it very real to us. Our 2020 vision, which we shared a few weeks ago, we want to build our weekly worship attendance to 450. Now, what do we do in here on Sundays? We sing, we read, we pray, and we preach what? The Word of God. If it can't be trusted, are you going to be bringing anybody here to come join us? You guys see this? Like our, our whole morning is centered around God has revealed himself to us in his word. Let's sing about it. Let's pray about it. Let's read it and let's preach it so that we can learn it and respond to it. But if that's not the case and we really can't trust it, you're probably not going to be motivated that much to bring somebody to join us. What about this? We want to celebrate 30 to 50 people each year becoming new followers of Jesus If you don't trust this, are you going to be inviting anybody else to come in and trust it? I mean, if you really don't believe that this is the word of God, that he's revealed it to us and that I can trust it, why would you leave today and go tell your neighbor, man, you've got to come taste the living water and come eat the bread of life because it is real and it's changed my life. Why would you financially give to support a mission that is centered on a word that if you don't really believe that you trust it? Let me take this a little bit further. Is anybody in here broken today? Yeah, appreciate that, Lionel. I see some hands. Man, man I'm broken. I'm, I'm torn apart. We just sang about that earlier. And what was this truth? What did we sing? God is what? God is mercy and God is what? Near. How do you know? Because he tells us in his word. But if this can't be trusted, how do you have any confidence for the brokenness you're facing right now? What you need right now is to hear God speak into the brokenness of your life. And if he hasn't spoken, you can't believe it. Do you see where we're, you see the implications? This is immense. The very first statement in our statement of faith, you know what it's about? It's about the word. If you lose confidence in the word, you will not read the word and you will not share the word. The passage we have today points to a larger concern that this Newsweek article makes explicit, and it's this. We don't have the original manuscripts. Hey, that's the elephant in the room. We don't. The one that Paul penned with his hand, we don't have it. We have copies, but we don't have the original autographs. And so the often assumed implication is that if you don't have the originals, you can't have any confidence in what was originally written. At best, you're left with just useless copies of copies, and you'll never have any confidence. 
but I disagree. And I'm going to argue for a different conclusion today. And my point is this. God has preserved his word for us. And you can trust it. When you leave today, I want this to be in your mind. God has preserved his word for us. And you can trust it. I'm going to argue and give you two main reasons why I believe this is true. And the first one is this. God has preserved his word through numerous early copies. I've got a table that I want you to look at here that I've listed a number. Let me just slide over so make sure everybody can see here. Of ancient and historical works. You've got Homer's Iliad there. The asterisk by there, it's the, the 643. So you'll see what we've got here. We've got the ancient works. Then we've got the oldest manuscript. You'll see when they were written. And then you'll see the number of manuscripts that we have. So Homer's Iliad was written in 8th century BC. We, we have um, 643 total manuscripts. It is the second largest number of manuscripts we have to the New Testament. But what I want you to see here is just the disparity between these ancient works. Herodotus, look at this, ancient work. It was written in 484 to 425 BC. The oldest manuscript is first century AD. So you're looking at what, some 500 years there? And we only have 75. Um, and then going on down, Thucydides, 460 to 400 BC. First century AD, again, 400 to 500 years. We only have eight manuscripts. Aristotle's Poetics, 343 BC. The oldest manuscript, 11th century AD. And we only have five manuscripts. Um, Livy, 59 BC to 8070, 4th century AD. And we only have 27. Tacitus, 9th century AD. Look at the gap there. And we've only got three. These are histories here. Suetonius, 9th century AD. We've got 200 plus. Caesar's Gallic War, 10th century AD, and we only have 10. And then we come to the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament, the oldest manuscript, because of the Dead Sea Scrolls, one of the greatest historical finds, 1947, we have manuscripts now that date back all the way to the 2nd century BC, and we have over 3,000 manuscripts. Now, the double asterisk there, I just want to help clarify this for you. When I say 3,000, where this is only counting Hebrew manuscripts. There are more than 8,000 manuscripts of the Latin Vulgate, over 1,500 of the Septuagint, and over 65 copies of the Syri Syriac Peshitta. Let's just add those up, right? The New Testament, written in the 40s to 90s AD, oldest manuscripts we have to the, the earliest, look, 100 to 150 AD, and 5,700 is the number of manuscripts. And to clarify that for you, this is, again, only the Greek manuscripts. There are more than 10,000 in Latin. And if we included the manuscripts translated in all the other languages, Coptic, Syriac, Armenian, Georgian, Gothic, and Arabic, that would, the total would be between twenty and 25,000 manuscripts. Why am I doing this? One New Testament scholar concludes this. The New Testament suffers from an embarrassment of riches. When it comes to the quantity of copies, the New Testament has no 
appear. Not only do we have numerous copies, I want you to look at the gap. Greg Gilbert has written a great article. I actually posted it um, about a week ago. And he argues this. No one screams, mind the gap, when it comes to ancient literature. Oh my goodness, we, we can't trust Homer's Iliad or Aristotle's poetics or these histories because of we've got a thousand years in between them. You don't hear anybody screaming that. And yet when it comes to the New Testament, when not only do we have the closer gap, we have the numerous manuscripts. They're saying, whoa, no, we can't trust it. In other words, if one is skeptical, skeptical about what the original New Testament text said, the skepticism needs to be extended to all other Greek and Latin authors as well. You can't just be selective in what you want to critique. And Greg Gilbert gives us an illustration. He gives us the Codex, Codex Vaticanus. This is one of the copies of the New Testament. I think I've given you some information here. The original manuscript was written in the 4th century AD. It was re-inked in the 10th century AD. Now, you may not at first catch the implication here, but I'm going to quote him. Do you see the implications? Do you see what this means? Codex Vaticanus was still in use 600 years after it was originally made. 4th century to 10th century. He continues, Therefore the claim that all we have are copies of copies of copies of the originals is far overwrought. And I'm putting this up here for you. Indeed, it's well within the realm of possibility that we have in our museums today copies of the originals full stop. What's the point of this? You may think, oh, well, there's still 75 years in between the writing of the New Testament and with the copies that we have, couldn't a lot happen in 75 years? But let me just remind you of this. Books meant a whole lot more to the ancients than they did to us. I mean, it's not like the printing press was just pumping out books at this time. And so copies were used, Codex Vaticanus, 600 years. And so when we're looking at this short gap, the implications are clear. Yes, you're right. We don't have the originals, but we have more manuscript evidence than any document in ancient history and the earliest manuscript evidence as well. But there's another issue. I know what you're thinking. And hey, look, and, and I want you to get this at Redemption Hill. We don't want to shy away from hard discussions. Like it could be easy. Let's just slide this, you know, a little comment above 753 and move on. But no, let's, let's address it. Let, let's, let's talk about it. And, and here's what it is. The wealth of manuscripts creates a problem. Do you know what the problem is? They don't all agree. The more manuscripts we have means there are more variations. And so someone might say, so what that you've got all of these early manuscripts? They all disagree with each other. Is there any solution to this problem? So the second truth I want to share with you is this. God has preserved his word accurately. Here's the irony. Hang in here with me. Because here's what I want you to hang in here with me. I want you to leave today 
confident saying this, God has preserved his word and it can be trusted and I can trust it and I can go share it with confidence. That's what I'm hoping to instill in you today. Here's the irony. Though the great number of manuscripts increase the number of errors, it allows us to confidently reconstruct the original writings. How, you may ask? Okay, cool. I'm glad you asked. I'm going to tell you. It increases the means of correcting scribal errors because we can compare them to each other and not just figure out what the errors are, but why a scribe would have written it. In other words, the variations tend to be self-correcting. In New Testament studies, in biblical studies, um, there's a field called textual criticism. I'll just give you a, a, a quick definition that we got up here. It's the science and art of comparing and studying copies to determine the most reliable original wording of a text. We could almost describe this process as like solving a logic puzzle. You've got all of these variants and these errors, and you're comparing, you're studying, and you're trying to ask, why did they do this? Why did they do this here? And how can we put all of this together, not to twist the text, but to see what was the original author conveying? And so by comparing the variants, we can usually identify why a scribe introduced a certain error. There's two kinds. The majority of variants are unintentional and accidental. In fact, 95% of all variants fall in this category. I'll give you an example. Hey, today's Valentine's. Roses are red. Violets are blue. Look at this. Can you tell what happened? Intentional or unintentional? Unintentional. You've got R-E-A-D, red. I read a book. Roses are red. It should have been R-E-D. Pretty simple. Let me show you another example here. This is by Greg Gilbert. Just read through this with me. See if you can figure it out. For example, letters that look similar might be switched out for each other. One word might be substituted for another one that sounded the same when read. Words might skipped. Words or letters might be be doubled. Even whole sections might be skipped when the same word was used a few lines apart. Now, can you look at that and explain what happened? What does the one look like? An L. It looks like a similar letter. So you could explain the variance in the copying error. What about the Q and might? It's close to a G. And when you're looking at these manuscripts and you're copying by hand, by the way, they didn't have computers back in the day. They're, 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 they're copying these by hand. You see the same would switch here. Or one, that, that's an error of hearing. A lot of these scribes and translations were done, some were looking, somebody had somebody dictating it to it. So if you're just listening to the dictated word and you're, you're writing it out, you could hear one and think O-N-E or W-O-N and be fair, right? Words are doubled. In, in some cases, here's what happens. You're looking over here and you see a sentence that ends with the word Valentine's. Maybe it's the word day. Let's just go ahead. It ends with day. 
And then a few sentences below, there's a word that begins with day. Day after day. And you know what some of them? They, they end that line and skip two lines because they go from day to day. I'm just giving you some examples to see how many of these errors, 95% are unintentional, and you can look at it and, and with confidence say, no, here's what happened. And you can go back and figure out what was in the original. The minority of variants, 5%, are intentional and deliberate. Let me ask, why would a scribe intentionally and deliberately add a variant? I'll just, I'll give you a few reasons here. One would be to revise grammar and spelling. Maybe they, they're wanting to correct what they perceive. It should be a correct spelling or grammar. Second, they want to harmonize similar passages. They, they know what another passage says, and so they're wanting to make it sound similar. So in one passage, it, it may say Jesus Christ, and in the next passage, it says Christ Jesus. Well, let's harmonize these, right, so that they sound the same. Third, maybe eliminate apparent discrepancies and difficulties. For instance, one of the difficulties in the Gospels is a passage in Matthew where Jesus says, I don't know the time of the end. You guys know what I'm talking about? If you're writing that out, that's alerting to you. What? Jesus doesn't know the end day? And so you see some that completely omit that verse. What are they trying to do? They, they don't understand the apparent discrepancy, and so the easiest solution for them is to remove it. Maybe they're, they're adapting different liturgical traditions or they're making theological doctrinal changes. But in all of these it's not like with the Gospel of John. We have two manuscripts. One includes our verses here and one doesn't. And you're deciding between one or the other. You've got thousands. And by having thousands, it helps you see what was really in the original instead of just comparing two. So the point is, is because we have a multitude of, of copies, we can compare them together. And it actually, ironically, helps us to determine through textual criticism what was in the original text. Gilbert clarifies what's happening here in textual criticism, and he says this. It's not a matter of guesswork or magic, much less of assumption or simply make things up, but rather of careful, deductive reasoning. So let me give you a few concluding points, and then I want us to read our passage. Wayne Grudem, in his systematic theology, says this, For over 99% of the words of the Bible, we know what the original manuscript said. Second, the majority of variants don't affect how we ultimately understand the Bible. No doctrinal issue is left in question by variants. So it's not like the deity of Jesus it's contingent upon, well, this verse has to be in there. No, it's not resting on one textual ev evidence or righteousness through faith alone in Jesus or the resurrection or the cross. Third, these variants aren't kept a secret. You know what I love about what our Bibles do? It's not like we're trying to hide these. If you read through your Bible, what do you find? You see footnotes all through your Bible. And what do the footnotes tell you? Like, I've, I've got one on this page um, that I'm just looking at the footnotes. It says, some manuscripts, he. 
If there was a significant variant, do you know what our Bibles do? They'll put a footnote and they'll put the, the option down there at the bottom. And so what it does is it instills confidence. When you don't see a footnote, it's because it's in a part, the 99% that you can trust that, man, we're sure this is the word of God. And in the other 1%, they give you a footnote so that you can see the options. The charge that we cannot know and have confidence in the original text is just absolutely false. When you read your translation, you can have a high degree of confidence that God has preserved his word accurately for you. Now, here's what I want to do. I want us to turn now and read this passage in John. And what I'm going to do, I want us to read it, not just say, hey, this is the word of God and the authoritative scripture. I want us to see the internal evidence that we've already discussed, but I want you to see also that it doesn't affect any Christian doctrine. It's not like we've got to say we need this here or we're going to be missing something. But I also want you to see here is that it's actually an echo of a greater theme that we see throughout the Bible, the theme of what God's doing to bring healing to brokenness, to bring restoration where there's been defeat. And so let me read through it, and I'm going to comment as we read through it along the way. Starting in 753, the Bible um, says this. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, in the law Moses commanded us to stone, stone such women. So what do you say? Now let me just highlight a few things. First of all, just to set the context. In verse 3 it says, It was the scribes and Pharisees. These are the religious leaders. These are the ones that are often in the Bible called hypocrites. Why? Because they honor God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. And we see that very evident in our text today. They bring before Jesus a woman who had been caught committing adultery. And they reference the death penalty of stoning that was found in the Old Testament, you could go back to Deuteronomy 22, Leviticus 20. Now, we're not sure if this woman was betrothed or actually married, and so there would be different implications based on that. But here's what should be pointed out. This entire sequence screams of inequality and injustice. You guys see that? I mean, who commits adultery in isolation? Isn't it two, two parties? Who's, who's brought before Jesus? It's the woman. Where's the man at? Did he, was he just too fast and he ran away? No, what's going on here is that there was a man that was a part of this, but they just brought the woman because they really weren't really concerned for justice and equality. They were really trying to trap Jesus. And that confirms us in verse 6 as we keep reading. It says this. This they said 
to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. The leaders were less interested in seeking justice than trying to trap Jesus in order to accuse him. They are using the law and this woman to get Jesus. And here's, here's how the trap works. Hey, Jesus, Moses, the foundation of what Genesis all the way through Deuteronomy, he says this, if somebody's caught adultery, they ought to be sown. Hey, what are you going to do about it, Jesus? So on one hand, if he follows through and says, you're right, and he stones her, one, that would seem to contradict the entire purpose of his coming, but two, he could be accused by the Roman government of doing something that they alone had the authority to do. But if he doesn't follow through, then he could be held as being lawless. So what happens? Let's continue reading in verse 6. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin... Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Why and what Jesus wrote on the ground really can't be determined. If you've seen The Passion of the Christ, this is actually one of those scenes that they show in the passion of the Christ. But the text doesn't tell us. We could try to figure that out, but we really don't know. And it's, it's not really important. It's not revealed to us. But what it does is it pauses and it gives time for what he says to penetrate their conscience. The witnesses of a crime, according to the Old Testament, must be the first to throw the stones. And they must have not been participants in the crime itself. So Jesus cut straight through to them, and here's what happens. They had come to shame Jesus, and now they leave in shame. How quickly are we, and I say we, I include myself, because I, I have a sinful heart at times and see the need the, for the gospel and the fruit of Christ to continue to renew me. Are we to just pick up and, and throw a stone? You see, if we remove the gospel, all that leaves us is self-righteousness. Look at how good I am. Look at what I don't do and what everybody else does. It just leads us to compare. Look, you, we can always find somebody who's, who's worse than we are, who's not as good as us. And we just walk around with some spiritual ego and pride. But that's not how Jesus responds. Look at verse 10. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is actually the first time Jesus addresses the woman at the very end here. And he even talked with her. And he doesn't even ask her if she's guilty. Though we know by what he says here, 
that's assumed. Go and sin no more. But why doesn't Jesus condemn her? Maybe it's because he came not to condemn, but to save. In fact, he said that he came down to lay down his life. Jesus said, I came not for the righteous, but for the sick. You hear that? This ought to be a place where the broken, where the torn apart, where the drunkard, where the adulterer can come and find God is merciful. And that is the good news of, a, of the gospel, and that is news that will turn a city upside down. Man, I plead with you today to not put on your spiritual ego, but to take it off and trust the word. And, and, and let's just look outside of this passage to teach you this. God is merciful. God is gracious. God is slow to anger. And his steadfast love endures forever. Jesus concludes by telling her to go and sin no more. Here's the deal. God is holy. And because God is holy, we must be holy. God completely hates all sin. Jesus isn't overlooking and shoving this sin under the rug. In fact, God will punish all sin. But the good news of the gospel and how this is an echo of the larger gospel of John is because John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. You see, the purpose of Jesus coming, he says, was not to condemn the world, but that through him they might be saved. He came as a witness. He came as the light to show that the way to life is not in covering up your sin, but to bring your sin and let it be exposed. Because here's what happened. When Jesus died on the cross, when his blood was shed, he paid for that sin. That adultery, that lust, that lying, and all of that brokenness to bring the redemption, he, he came to lay down his life for that. And so the beauty of the gospel is God is holy, but God doesn't overlook sin. He must punish sin, but he provides his own son to pay that punishment. So that you don't have to die. You can live. And here's what happens. D.A. Carson commented on, on this. says, the proper response to the mercy received on account of past sins is purity in the future. You see, it is the gospel that propels us 
to go and sin no more. We don't go and sin no more so that we can stand before God and say, God, look at me. I'm not a sinner anymore. No, we go and sin no more because we see Jesus has changed my heart and I am now born again and I am alive and I have new affections and new desires and that sin doesn't satisfy me, but it's the living water that satisfies me. That sin doesn't satisfy me, but it's the bread of life. And so it's to come and to believe and to feast on Jesus. We don't pursue holiness because we're afraid of being stoned. We pursue holiness because we've met Jesus. And we have a relationship with God. God has rescued us by his grace. How could we continue to live in sin? So I'll leave you with this. God has preserved his word for us. And you can trust it. And if you trust it today by confessing your sin and by believing in Jesus, you can have eternal life. If you're torn apart today and you're broken, you can trust the word that says, I am merciful. I am near. I hear your cries for help. Draw near to me. So you haven't just read copies of copies of copies, of translations, of translations, of translations. You have read and you have the very word of God. And you can know him. Trust and believe. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the confidence we have that as Jesus said in John 17, your word is truth. Sanctify them in truth. God, help us to believe that your word is true. That you are rich in mercy. That even though this passage is not originally inspired, it is an echo of where we see elsewhere. That you so loved us that you gave Christ so that we wouldn't have to die as a result of our sin, but that we could have life. God, I just pray you would open eyes and you would give new life to those that are here today, that they would truly experience the goodness of Christ. And God, that we would leave today confident that you will use your word to build your church so that we can go and tell our neighbor Jesus is real and God is real and you can know him because the word can be trusted and that we can find true worship even as we sing and pray and read and hear because your word can be trusted. And for those of us that are facing brokenness and hurt and shame, we can hear your word and find forgiveness and healing and hope that one day you're going to rewrite this story with a new creation And that brokenness isn't the end. God, would you help our unbelief and increase our faith 
I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.